Section 26 of the Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1, by Edmund Burke. Part 9 of Observations on a Late Publication, entitled The Present State of the Nation. It is not always very pleasant to be obliged to produce the detail of this kind of transactions to the public view. I will content myself, therefore, with giving a short state of facts, which, when the author chooses to contradict, he shall see proved, more perhaps to his conviction than to his liking. The first fact, then, is that the demand for the Manila ransom had been in the author's favourite administration so neglected as to appear to have been little less than tacitly abandoned. At home, no countenance was given to the claimants, and when it was mentioned in Parliament, the then leader did not seem, at least, a very sanguine advocate in favour of the claim. These things made it a matter of no small difficulty to resume and press that negotiation with Spain. However, so clear was our right that the then ministers resolved to revive it, and so little time was lost that though that administration was not completed until the 9th of July, 1765, on the 20th of the following August, General Conway transmitted a strong and full remonstrance on that subject to the Earl of Rochford. The argument, on which the Court of Madrid most relied, was the dereliction of that claim by the preceding ministers. However, it was still pushed with so much vigour that the Spaniards, from a positive denial to pay, offered to refer the demand to arbitration. That proposition was rejected, and the demand being still pressed, there was all the reason in the world to expect it being brought to a favourable issue, when it was thought proper to change the administration. Whether under their circumstances, and in the time they continued in power, more could be done, the reader will judge, who will hear with astonishment a charge of remissness from those very men whose inactivity, to call it by no worse a name, laid the chief difficulties in the way of the revived negotiation. As to the Canada bills, this author thinks proper to assert that the proprietors found themselves under a necessity of compounding their demands upon the French court and accepting terms which they had often rejected and which the Earl of Halifax had declared he would sooner forfeit his hand than sign. When I know that the Earl of Halifax says so, the Earl of Halifax shall have an answer but I persuade myself that his lordship has given no authority for this ridiculous rant. In the meantime, I shall only speak of it as a common concern of that ministry. In the first place, then, I observe that a convention for the liquidation of the Canada bills was concluded under the administration of 1766, when nothing was concluded under that of the favourites of this author. Two, this transaction was, in every step of it, carried on in concert with the persons interested 
and was terminated to their entire satisfaction. They would have acquiesced perhaps in terms somewhat lower than those which were obtained. The author is indeed too kind to them. He will, however, let them speak for themselves, and show what their own opinion was of the measures pursued in their favour. In what manner the execution of the Convention has been since provided for, it is not my present business to examine. 3. The proprietors had absolutely despaired of being paid, at any time, any proportion of their demand until the change of that ministry. The merchants were checked and discountenanced. They had often been told, by some in authority, of the cheap rate at which these Canada bills had been procured. Yet the author can talk of the composition of them as a necessity induced by the change in administration. They found themselves indeed, before that change, under a necessity of hinting somewhat of bringing the matter into Parliament. But they were soon silenced, and put in mind of the fate which the Newfoundland business had there met with. Nothing struck them more than the strong contrast between the spirit and method of proceeding of the two administrations. 4. The Earl of Halifax never did, nor could, refuse to sign this convention, because this convention, as it stands, never was before him. The author's last charge on that ministry, with regard to foreign affairs, is the Russian Treaty of Commerce, which the author thinks fit to assert was concluded on terms the Earl of Buckinghamshire had refused to accept of and which had been deemed by former ministers disadvantageous to the nation and by the merchants unsafe and unprofitable. Both the assertions in this paragraph are equally groundless. The treaty then concluded by Sir George McCartney was not on the terms which the Earl of Buckinghamshire had refused. The Earl of Buckinghamshire never did refuse terms, because the business never came to the point of refusal or acceptance. All he did was to receive the Russian project for a treaty of commerce and to transmit it to England. This was in November 1764, and he left Petersburg the January following, before he could even receive an answer from his own court. The conclusion of the treaty fell to his successor. Whoever will be at the trouble to compare it with the treaty of 1734 will, I believe, confess that, if the former ministers could have obtained such terms, they were criminal in not accepting them. But the merchants deemed them unsafe and unprofitable. What merchants? As no treaty ever was more maturely considered, so the opinion of the Russia merchants in London was all along taken, and all the instructions sent over were in exact conformity to that opinion. Our minister there made no step without having previously consulted our merchants resident in Petersburg, who, before the signing of the treaty, gave the most full and unanimous testimony in its favour. In their address to our minister at that court, among other things they say, It may afford some additional satisfaction to your excellency to receive a public acknowledgement of the entire and unreserved approbation of every article in this treaty from us who are so immediately 
and so nearly concerned in its consequences. This was signed by the Consul-General and every British merchant in Petersburg. The approbation of those immediately concerned in the consequences is nothing to this author. He and his friends have so much tenderness for people's interests and understand them so much better than they do themselves that, whilst these politicians are contending for the best of possible terms, the claimants are obliged to go without any terms at all. One of the first and justest complaints against the administration of the author's friends was the want of rigour in their foreign negotiations. Their immediate successors endeavoured to correct that error, along with others, and there was scarcely a foreign court in which the new spirit that had arisen was not sensibly felt, acknowledged, and sometimes complained of. On their coming into administration, they found the demolition of Dunkirk entirely at a stand. Instead of demolition, they found construction, for the French were then at work on the repair of the jetties. On the remonstrances of General Conway, some parts of these jetties were immediately destroyed. The Duke of Richmond personally surveyed the place and obtained a fuller knowledge of its true state and condition than any of our ministers had done and, in consequence, had larger offers from the Duke of Choiseul than had ever been received. But, as these were short of our just expectations under the treaty, he rejected them. Our then ministers, knowing that, in their administration, the people's minds were set at ease upon all the essential points of public and private liberty, and that no project of theirs could endanger the concord of the empire, were under no restraint from pursuing every just demand upon foreign nations. The author, towards the end of this work, falls into reflections upon the state of public morals in this country. He draws use from this doctrine by recommending his friend to the king and the public as another Duke of Sully, and he concludes the whole performance with a very devout prayer. The prayers of politicians may sometimes be sincere, and as this prayer is in substance that the author or his friends may be soon brought into power, I have great reason to believe it is very much from the heart. It must be owned, too, that after he has drawn such a picture, such a shocking picture, of the state of this country, he has great faith in thinking the means he prays for sufficient to relieve us. After the character he has given of its inhabitants of all ranks and classes, he has great charity in caring much about them, and indeed no less hope in being of opinion that such a detestable nation can ever become the care of providence. He has not even found five good men in our devoted city. He talks indeed of men of virtue and ability, but where are his men of virtue and ability to be found? Are they in the present administration? Never were a set of people more blackened by this author. Are they among the party of those, no small body, who adhere to the system of 1766? These it is the great purpose of this book to calumniate. Are they the persons who acted with his great friend since the change in 1762, to his removal in 1765? Scarcely any of these are now out of employment, 
and we are in possession of his desideratum. Yet I think he hardly means to select even some of the highest of them as examples fit for the reformation of a corrupt world. He observes that the virtue of the most exemplary prince that ever swayed a sceptre can never warm or illuminate the body of his people if foul mirrors are placed so near him as to refract and dissipate the rays at their first emanation. Without observing upon the propriety of this metaphor, or asking how mirrors come to have lost their old quality of reflecting, and to have acquired that of refracting and dissipating rays, and how far their foulness will account for this change, the remark itself is common and true. No less true, and equally surprising from him, is that which immediately precedes it. It is in vain to endeavour to check the progress of irreligion and licentiousness by punishing such crimes in one individual if others equally culpable are rewarded with the honours and emoluments of the state. I am not in the secret of the author's manner of writing, but it appears to me that he must intend these reflections as a satire upon the administration of his happy years. Wherever the honours and emoluments of the state more lavishly squandered upon persons scandalous in their lives than during that period? In these scandalous lives, was there anything more scandalous than the mode of punishing one culpable individual? In that individual is anything more culpable than his having been seduced by the example of some of those very persons by whom he was thus persecuted? The author is so eager to attack others that he provides but indifferently for his own defence. I believe, without going beyond the page I have now before me, he is very sensible that I have sufficient matter of further, and if possible, of heavier charge against his friends upon his own principle. But it is because the advantage is too great that I decline making use of it. I wish the author had not thought that all methods are lawful in party. Above all, he ought to have taken care not to wound his enemies through the sides of his country. This he has done by making that monstrous and overcharged picture of the distresses of our situation. No wonder that he, who finds this country in the same condition with that of France at the time of Henry the Fourth could also find a resemblance between his political friend and the Duke of Sully. As to those personal resemblances, people will often judge of them from their affections. They may imagine in these clouds whatsoever figures they please, but what is the confirmation of that eye which can discover a resemblance of this country and these times to those with which the author compares them? France a country just recovered out of twenty-five years of the most cruel and desolating civil war that perhaps was ever known. The kingdom, under the veil of momentary quiet, full of the most atrocious political, operating upon the most furious fanatical factions. Some pretenders even to the crown, and those who did not pretend to the whole, aimed at the partition of the monarchy, there were almost as many competitors as provinces, 
and all abetted by the greatest, the most ambitious, and most enterprising power in Europe. No place safe from treason, no, not the bosoms on which the most amiable prince that ever lived reposed his head, not his mistresses, not even his queen. As to the finances, they had scarce an existence, but as a matter of plunder to the managers, and of grants to insatiable and ungrateful courtiers. How can our author have the heart to describe this as any sort of parallel to our situation? To be sure, an April shower has some resemblance to a waterspout, for they are both wet, and there is some likeness between a summer evening's breeze and a hurricane. They are both wind. But who can compare our disturbances, our situation, or our finances to those of France in the time of Henry? Great Britain is indeed at this time wearied, but not broken, with the efforts of a victorious foreign war, not sufficiently relieved by an inadequate peace, but somewhat benefited by that peace, and infinitely by the consequences of that war. The powers of Europe awed by our victories and lying in ruins upon every side of us. Burdened indeed we are with debt, but abounding with resources. We have a trade, not perhaps equal to our wishes, but more than ever we possessed. In effect, no pretender to the crown, nor nutriment for such desperate and destructive factions as have formerly shaken this kingdom. As to our finances, the author trifles with us. When Sully came to those of France, in what order was any part of the financial system? Or what system was there at all? There is no man in office who must not be sensible that ours is, without the act of any parading minister, the most regular and orderly system, perhaps, that was ever known, the best secured against all frauds in the collection and all misapplication in the expenditure of public money. I admit that, in this flourishing state of things, there are appearances enough to excite uneasiness and apprehension. I admit there is a canker-worm in the rose. Medio del fonte leporum, surgit amari aliquid, quod in ipsis floribus angat. This is nothing else than a spirit of disconnection, of distrust, and of treachery among public men. It is no accidental evil, nor has its effect been trusted to the usual frailty of nature. The distemper has been inoculated. The author is sensible of it, and we lament it together. This distemper is alone sufficient to take away considerably from the benefits of our constitution and situation, and perhaps to render their continuance precarious. If these evil dispositions should spread much farther, they must end in our destruction, for nothing can save a people destitute of public and private faith. However, the author, for the present state of things, has extended the charge by much too widely, as men are but too apt to take the measure of all mankind from their own particular acquaintance. Barren as this age may be in the growth of honour and virtue, the country does not want, at this moment, as strong, and those not a few examples, as were ever known, 
of an unshaken adherence to principle and attachment to connection against every allurement of interest. Those examples are not furnished by the great alone, nor by those whose activity in public affairs may render it suspected that they may make such a character one of the rounds in their ladder of ambition, but by men more quiet and more in the shade, on whom an unmixed sense of honour alone could operate. Such examples, indeed, are not furnished in great abundance amongst those who are the subjects of the author's panegyric. He must look for them in another camp. He who claims of the ill effects of a divided and heterogeneous administration is not justifiable in labouring to render odious in the eyes of the public those men whose principles, whose maxims of policy, and whose personal character can alone administer a remedy to this capital evil of the age. Neither is he consistent with himself in constantly extolling those whom he knows to be the authors of the very mischief of which he complains, and which the whole nation feels so deeply. The persons who are the object of his dislike and complaint are many of them of the first families and weightiest properties in the kingdom, but infinitely more distinguished for their untainted honour, public and private, and their zealous but sober attachment to the constitution of their country than they can be by any birth or any station. If they are the friends of any one great man rather than another, it is not that they make his aggrandisement the end of their union, or because they know him to be the most active in cabling for his connections the largest and speediest emoluments. It is because they know him, by personal experience, to have wise and enlarged ideas of the public good, and an invincible constancy in adhering to it, because they are convinced, by the whole tenor of his actions, that he will never negotiate away their honour or his own, and that, in or out of power, change of situation will make no alteration in his conduct. This will give to such a person, in such a body, an authority and respect that no minister ever enjoyed among his venal dependents in the highest plenitude of his power. Such a civility never can give, such as ambition can never receive or relish. This body will often be reproached by their adversaries for want of ability in their political transactions. They will be ridiculed for missing many favourable conjunctures and not profiting of several brilliant opportunities of fortune. But they must be contented to endure that reproach, for they cannot acquire the reputation of that kind of ability without losing all the other reputation they possess. They will be charged, too, with a dangerous spirit of exclusion and proscription for being unwilling to mix in schemes of administration which have no bond of union or principle of confidence. That charge, too, they must suffer with patience. If the reason of the thing had not spoken loudly enough, the miserable examples of the several administrations constructed upon the idea of systematic discord would be enough to frighten them from such monstrous and ruinous conjunctions. It is, however, false that the idea of a united administration 
carries with it that of a proscription of any other party. It does indeed imply the necessity of having the great strongholds of government in well-united hands, in order to secure the predominance of right and uniform principles, of having the capital offices of deliberation and execution of those who can deliberate with mutual confidence, and who will execute what is resolved with firmness and fidelity. If this system cannot be rigorously adhered to in practice, and what system can be so, it ought to be the constant aim of good men to approach as nearly to it as possible. No system of that kind can be formed which will not leave room fully sufficient for healing coalitions. But no coalition which under the specious name of independency carries in its bosom the unreconciled principles of the original discord of parties ever was or will be an healing coalition. Nor will the mind of our sovereign ever know repose, his kingdom settlement, or his business order, efficiency, or grace with his people, until things are established upon the basis of some set of men who are trusted by the public and who can trust one another. This comes rather nearer to the mark than the author's description of a proper administration under the name of men of ability and virtue, which conveys no definite idea at all, nor does it apply specifically to our grand national distemper. All parties pretend to these qualities. The present ministry, no favourites of the author, will be ready enough to declare themselves persons of virtue and ability, and if they choose a vote for that purpose, perhaps it would not be quite impossible for them to procure it. But, if the disease be this distrust and disconnection, it is easy to know who are sound and who are tainted, who are fit to restore us to health, who to continue and to spread the contagion. The present ministry being made up of drafts from all parties in the kingdom, if they should profess any adherence to the connections they have left, they must convict themselves of the blackest treachery. They therefore choose rather to renounce the principle itself and to brand it with the name of pride and faction. This test with certainty discriminates the opinions of men. The other is a description vague and unsatisfactory. As to the unfortunate gentleman who may at any time compose that system, which, under the plausible title of an administration, subsists but for the establishment of weakness and confusion, they fall into different classes, with different merits. I think the situation of some people in that state may deserve a certain degree of compassion, at the same time that they furnish an example, which, it is to be hoped, by being a severe one, will have its effect at least on the growing generation. If an original seduction, on plausible but hollow pretenses, into loss of honour, friendship, consistency, security and repose, can furnish it. It is possible to draw, even from the very prosperity of ambition, examples of terror and motives to compassion. I believe the instances are exceedingly rare of men immediately passing over a clear marked line of virtue into declared vice and corruption. 
there are a sort of middle tints and shades between the two extremes. There is something uncertain on the confines of the two empires which they first pass through, and which renders the change easy and imperceptible. There are even a sort of splendid imposition so well contrived that, at the very time the path of rectitude is quitted for ever, men seem to be advancing into some higher and nobler road of public conduct. Not that such impositions are strong enough in themselves, but a powerful interest, often concealed from those whom it affects, works at the bottom and secures the operation. Men are thus debauched away from those legitimate connections, which they had formed on a judgment, early perhaps, but sufficiently mature and wholly unbiased. They do not quit them upon any ground of complaint, for grounds of just complaint may exist, but upon the flattering and most dangerous of all principles, that of mending what is well. Gradually they are habituated to other company, and a change in their habitudes soon makes a way for the change in their opinions. Certain persons are no longer so very frightful, when they are come to be known and to be serviceable. As to their old friends, the transition is easy. From friendship to civility, from civility to enmity, few other steps from dereliction to persecution. People not very well grounded in the principles of public morality find a set of maxims in office ready-made for them, which they assume as naturally and inevitably as any of the insignia or instruments of the situation. A certain tone of the solid and practical is immediately acquired. Every former profession of public spirit is to be considered as a debauch of youth, or, at best, as a visionary scheme of unattainable perfection. The very idea of consistency is exploded. The convenience of the business of the day is to furnish the principle for doing it. Then the whole ministerial cant is quickly got by heart. The prevalence of faction is to be lamented. All opposition is to be regarded as the effect of envy and disappointed ambition. All administrations are declared to be alike. The same necessity justifies all their measures. It is no longer a matter of discussion who or what administration is, but that administration is to be supported is a general maxim. Flattering themselves that their power is become necessary to the support of all order and government, everything which tends to the support of that power is sanctified and becomes a part of the public interest. Growing every day more formed to affairs and better knit in their limbs when the occasion, now the only rule, requires it, they become capable of sacrificing those very persons to whom they had before sacrificed their original friends. It is now only in the ordinary course of business to alter an opinion or to betray a connection. Frequently relinquishing one set of men and adopting another, they grow into a total indifference to human feeling, as they had before to moral obligation, until at length, no one original impression remains upon their minds. Every principle is obliterated, every sentiment effaced. In the meantime, that power, 
which all these changes aimed at securing, remain still as tottering and as uncertain as ever. They are delivered up into the hands of those who feel neither respect for their persons nor gratitude for their favours, who are put about them in appearance to serve, in reality to govern them, and when the signal is given to abandon and destroy them in order to set up some new dupe of ambition, who in his turn is to be abandoned and destroyed. Thus living in a state of continual uneasiness and ferment, softened only by the miserable consolation of giving now and then preferments to those for whom they have no value, they are unhappy in their situation, yet find it impossible to resign. Until, at length, soured in temper and disappointed by the very attainment of their ends, in some angry, in some haughty, or some negligent moment, they incur the displeasure of those upon whom they have rendered their very being dependent. Then, perierunt tempora longi servitii, they are cast off with scorn, they are turned out, emptied of all natural character, of all intrinsic worth, of all essential dignity, and deprived of every consolation of friendship. Having rendered all retreat to old principles ridiculous and to old regards impracticable, not being able to counterfeit pleasure or to discharge discontent, nothing being sincere or right or balanced in their minds, it is more than a chance that, in the delirium of the last stage of their distempered power, they make an insane political testament by which they throw all their remaining weight and consequence into the scale of their declared enemies and the avowed authors of their destruction. Thus they finish their course. Had it been possible that the whole, or even a great part of these effects on their minds, I say nothing of the effect upon their fortunes, could have appeared to them in their first departure from the right line, it is certain they would have rejected every temptation with horror. The principle of these remarks, like every good principle in morality, is trite, but its frequent application is not the less necessary. As to others, who are plain, practical men, they have been guiltless at all times of all public pretense. Neither the author nor anyone else has reason to be angry with them. They belong to his friend for their interest. For their interest, they quitted him. And when it is their interest, he may depend upon it, they will return to their former connection. Such people subsist at all times, and though the nuisance of all, are at no time a worthy subject of discussion. It is false virtue and plausible error that do the mischief. If men come to government with right dispositions, they have not that unfavourable subject which this author represents to work upon. Our circumstances are indeed critical, but then they are the critical circumstances of a strong and mighty nation. If corruption and meanness are greatly spread, they are not spread universally. Many public men are hitherto examples of public spirit and integrity. Whole parties, as far as large bodies can be uniform, have preserved character. However they may be deceived in some particulars, I know of no set of men amongst us which does not contain persons on whom the nation, 
in a difficult exigence may well value itself. Private life, which is the nursery of the Commonwealth, is yet in general pure, and on the whole disposed to virtue, and the people at large want neither generosity nor spirit. No small part of that very luxury, which is so much the subject of the author's declamation, but which, in most parts of life, by being well balanced and diffused, is only decency and convenience, has perhaps as many or more good than evil consequences attending it. It certainly excites industry, nourishes emulation, and inspires some sense of personal value into all ranks of people. What we want is to establish more fully an opinion of uniformity and consistency of character in the leading men of the state, such as will restore some confidence to profession and appearance, such as will fix subordination upon esteem. Without this, all schemes are begun at the wrong end. All who join in them are liable to their consequences. All men who, under whatever pretext, take a part in the formation or the support of systems constructed in such a manner as must, in their nature, disable them from the execution of their duty, have made themselves guilty of all the present distraction and of the future ruin which they may bring upon their country. It is a serious affair, this studied disunion in government. In cases where union is most consulted in the constitution of a ministry, and where persons are best disposed to promote it, differences, from the various ideas of men, will arise, and from their passions will often ferment into violent heats, so as greatly to disorder all public business. What must be the consequence, when the very distemper is made the basis of the constitution, and the original weakness of human nature is still further enfeebled by art and contrivance? It must subvert government from the very foundation. It turns our public councils into the most mischievous cabals, where the consideration is not how the nation's business shall be carried on, but how those who ought to carry it on shall circumvent each other. In such a state of things, no order, uniformity, dignity or effect can appear in our proceedings, either at home or abroad, nor will it make much difference whether some of the constituent parts of such an administration are men of virtue or ability or not. Supposing it possible that such men, with their eyes open, should choose to make a part in such a body. The effects of all human contrivances are in the hand of providence. I do not like to answer, as our author so readily does, for the event of any speculation, but surely the nature of our disorders, if anything, must indicate the proper remedy. Men who act steadily on the principles I have stated may in all events be very serviceable to their country. In one case, by furnishing, if their sovereign should be so advised, an administration formed upon ideas very different from those which have for some time been unfortunately fashionable. But, if this should not be the case, they may be still serviceable, for the example of a large body of men, steadily sacrificing ambition to principle, can never be without use. 
it will certainly be prolific and draw others to an imitation. Vera gloria radicis agit, atque etiam propagatur. I do not think myself of consequence enough to imitate my author in troubling the world with the prayers or wishes I may form for the public. Full as little am I disposed to imitate his professions. Those professions are long since worn out in the political service. If the work will not speak for the author, his own declarations deserve but little credit. End of section 26